Welcome to the Quadcast, a Yale Divinity School podcast. In our first episode of this season, graduate student Emily Judd and Yale Divinity School professor Harold Attridge discuss challenges in the field of biblical studies. Professor Attridge served as dean of Yale Divinity School for 10 years and was general editor for the HarperCollins Study Bible. In this episode of the Quadcast, Professor Attridge discusses how to deal with biblical verses that seem to condone slavery, anti-Semitism, or sexism. Um, it's quite appropriate to call our um, uh, Christian brothers and sisters who put the Bible together to the table and say, no, you wouldn't say that now, would you, Paul? Or would you, Matthew? Professor Attridge also weighs in on what it is like for a biblical scholar to transition from teaching the Bible in a classroom to listening to a homily in church. But I'm, um, you know, often asked by uh, by priests who know that I'm in, in the audience, what do you think of that? And, uh, you know, would you do something differently? And we have interesting conversations. And Professor Attridge also recounts his first experience of Yale Divinity School. When I first arrived, the place was falling down around uh, our ears, the <laughs> roofs were leaking, and shutters were hanging off the windows. In the you know, 21 uh, years that I've been here, there's uh, been some a good deal of continuity and also um, um, a good deal of change. The physical plant, of course, has been uh, totally renovated. Welcome, Professor Attridge, to the Quadcast. Nice to be here. Thank you, Emily. Now, one book that I have on my shelf <laughs> is the HarperCollins Study Bible, which mm -hmm. we use here at Yale Divinity School, and I love it because it gives great introductions, provides context at the bottom of each page, and you edited that. Uh, how long was that process of mm -hmm. editing the Bible? Because your version is about... 2,300 pages. Right. Well, let, let me be clear on this. I edited the revised version of uh, that. The first version of it was edited by another colleague here at Yale, Wayne Meeks. Uh, and the, um, what's being edited there uh, is the introductions and notes, not the text. The text is the uh, text of the new Revised Standard Version. So the uh, HarperCollins Study Bible, like other study Bibles, uh, was put together by um, a group of scholars, in, in this case under the auspices of the Society of Biblical Literature, and uh, working with the publisher. And what happens in the creation of a, a collection like this is that there's an editorial team that uh, gets together under a general editor, and they identify um, individual scholars who can comment on individual books, and then um, they do the introductions, and then all of that stuff is uh, funneled through the, um, the um, uh, core editorial team, and then uh, eventually sent to the publisher. So <clears throat> uh, when uh, I get into the process, it was to do a revised version of what uh, an earlier scholarly team had done. So it wasn't starting from scratch, it was building, standing on the shoulders of many learned people, as we all do in this discipline. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a big book, but when you think about um, uh, the fact that it's a team effort, it's not quite as daunting. Is it a year-long process? Oh, it, or? Took, it took a couple of years, yeah. Mm -hmm. Two or three years, I think, on that case. That Were there case. any challenging decisions that you made in the process? Um, well, yes and no. Um, there, there were some um, decisions about who was going to do the editorial work on particular books. But in terms of the, the difficulties of uh, interpreting the text, no, we... we um, it had instructions for um, the authors of the notes and the introductions that they were to uh, give a fair and balanced account 
um, of uh, the scholarly consensus and to indicate where they were controversial uh, issues that had to be highlighted. You're a biblical scholar mm-hmm. and a practicing Catholic. Have you ever had a moment when you were sitting in a mass hearing a homily that was incorrect? I'm not sure I would characterize um, homilies as incorrect. Um, uh, Yes, you're you're correct. I am a um, a Roman Catholic, and uh, I do go to Mass on a regular basis, and I do listen to homilies and often have conversations with the homilist uh, after uh, Mass. Um, I'm probably a little more circumspect in my comments now than I was when I was a a fresh young scholar. uh, but I think um, the the study of Scripture has become uh, more, uh, or the uh, the scholarly study of Scripture has become uh, more deeply ingrained into Catholic education for uh, clerics than it was, let's say, 50 years ago. That was certainly one of the uh, the um, calls to arms of the Second Vatican Council uh, to get more serious about scriptural study. And there's an interesting history behind uh, the Catholic hierarchy and its approach to uh, biblical study. But uh, these days, it's certainly taken seriously. And um, uh, people try, I think, um, to um, be responsible in in uh, dealing with the scriptural text. So I'm seldom in the position of getting up and shouting, oh, you didn't understand a thing. <laughs> um, but I'm, um, you know, often asked by uh, by priests who know that I'm in, in the audience, what do you think of that? And, uh, you know, would you do something differently? And we have interesting conversations. So, Do you separate your study of Christianity from your practice of it? Um, no, I think... Um, uh, well, yes and no. Um, I think my study of, of um, Christian origins, of uh, the Christian scriptures, and the history of uh, Christian interpretation has probably informed and um, sharpened my understanding of um, Christian pra- Catholic practice today. Um, and uh, I think my engagement with uh, an ecumenical uh, community of, of Christian scholars and uh, practitioners and an interfaith community of uh, religious people has uh, shaped my um, my understanding and approach to certain critical biblical questions. So there's a kind of dialectical process that's uh, gone on. I certainly don't try to uh, totally separate my uh, reading of scripture and my, uh, as a faithful Catholic and um, or attempted faithful Catholic, and um, my uh, scholarly activity. But uh, as I say, it's a dialectical thing. (laughs) So was there ever a moment where you learned something that tested your faith? Uh, I don't think there was ever something that, uh, as a scholar, uh, that forced me to, uh, you know, profoundly rethink my faith, in part because... um, Catholics, I think, in in general, um, have a, f- a focus of their um, their piety and their commitment to the the, the Christian way that centers on uh, the liturgical life of the Church and the Eucharist, and not on the Bible. That's traditionally been the case, and even in the post-Vatican II era, when the Bible has loomed larger in um, Catholic thought and practice, the Eucharist still remains the the core of Catholic experience. So I've often seen in students who come from a very traditional um, uh, Protestant uh, environment and see critical scholarship for the first time, they can be shaken by it. 
Um, but that never really was the experience for, for me. Critical scholarship about uh, ancient texts was something that I grew up with as a student of the, the classics, and um, uh, seeing it apply to the New Testament didn't uh, affect my faith in any profound way. It matured my faith, I suppose, is one way of saying it. Now, you are skilled in many different languages. You are teaching a class this semester um, Gnostic texts, I believe, mm-hmm. um, and that's they're written in Coptic. Right. Um, there is a language barrier for most people reading the Bible, mm-hmm. as most of us are reading the English translation. Mm-hmm. Do you get more out of reading the texts in Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, the languages that most of the texts were written in? Uh, yes, I, I think it's, um, you, you know, I think it's a, a very illuminating experience to um, encounter the, uh, the text in their original language and to uh, see some of the difficulties in translation. And it opens up a different perspective on a biblical uh, text than just taking what you have in English. Important points can be made with um, linguistic plays that are difficult to produce in, uh, reproduce in English. So both Paul and Hebrews talk about the New Covenant or New Testament. We use that language without thinking about the relationship between covenant and testament. It's the same word in Greek, but a, a testament has uh, notions of inheritance uh, and a covenant does not. Covenant is basically an agreement, a, a, you know, a contract. Um, But the same word can be used in, um, uh, the same word covers both ranges of meaning in in, uh, Greek. And the play between those two different social circumstances, uh, a contract and an inheritance, are things that both Paul and the Epistle of Hebrews play with. So you miss this if you don't see what's going on in the original language. So if there are words in the Bible that we won't understand the meanings should those words be left out? Should they be omitted? No, certainly not. No, that's what you have, um, things like the Hopper Study Bible or commentaries. I mean, one of the things in the Hopper Study Bible is you have um, notes at the bottom of the page that point out uh, what's going on with um, the original language at certain points, and that's good to know. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking in particular in the Gospel of John when... Um, at the scene of the crucifixion of Jesus, and he says that uh, the line about the Jewish people at the time, and that's been taken. That, that's and actually in the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew, sorry. Je, je, John has other problems. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that has caused so many um, sure. misinterpretations and issues. Would it have just been better just to have omitted it altogether? Or, I mean, I guess, you, like you said, add mm-hmm. the context to yeah. let people know it's... Okay, so that uh, that's a little bit different an issue from the issue of uh, going to the original language and seeing what the, the words mean or how people are playing with words. Um, there are some things in our uh, now recognized sacred text that we take umbrage at for various reasons. Um, and uh, the passage in the Gospel of Matthew um, uh, that uh, where the Jewish crowds say to Pilate that his blood be on our heads and the heads of our children has obviously been used in very deleterious ways in the history of Christian anti-Semitism. There are other um, biblical texts that um, uh, have had similar uh, negative consequences for human beings. Um, Wives be subject to your husbands and 
why women be silent in church, um, not sorts of things we uh, want to uh, enforce today, at least uh, not in any of the communities that I'm associated with, or slaves be obedient to your masters, uh, etc. Um, so there are uh, certain social values, there are certain uh, social tensions that are reflected in our biblical texts, and I think we have to take uh, an appropriately critical stance toward them. Um, but not omit them. Could we simply drop all of that stuff that we uh, don't like from our biblical text? Well, uh, some uh, communities or uh, traditions uh, do that in effect by not reading those things in sacred uh, assembly. Um, but they're still there, and people uh, who encounter the scriptures are, are going to encounter them, and uh, they need to be addressed in a critical way. Uh, I think we have to recognize that scriptures are, uh, whatever our theory of inspiration might be, they are written by human beings, and human beings come with their faults and prejudices and um, negative attitudes of various sorts, and presuppositions that we now think are quite outmoded and based on a misperception of um, the fundamental realities of who we are. Uh, and so um, it's quite appropriate to call our uh, uh, Christian brothers and sisters who put the Bible together to the table and say, no, you wouldn't say that now, would you, Paul, or would you, Matthew? <laughs> uh, I think on the Matthean uh, line, uh, what Matthew was trying to do um, in that uh, rather horrific verse is to give a, an explanation along the lines of uh, Deut Deuteronomic theology that we get in the Old Testament for the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 and saying that, um, look, Jesus was, uh, as we believe, the Messiah and uh, his Jewish brothers and sisters rejected him and um, they uh, called upon themselves the judgment of God. That whole line of reasoning, I think we could uh, uh, engage in a kind of uh, critique of, but that's what he was trying to do. I don't think he was trying to set up a, uh, a kind of uh, anti-Semitic propaganda machine, although that's the way the text has often been used. Mm -hmm. And moving on to your personal experience, you came to YDS in 1997 in the role of professor before serving as dean from 2002 to 2012, and then returning to your current role as Sterling Professor of Divinity. What is the most significant change that you have seen at YDS? Um, in the 21 uh, years that I've been here, there's uh, been some a good deal of continuity and also um, um, a good deal of change. The physical plant, of course, has been uh, totally renovated. And uh, when I first arrived, the place was falling down around uh, our ears. <laughs> the roofs were leaking and shutters were hanging off the window, so it was a mess. Uh, but the decision had been made to uh, renovate the place, and so I, that's why I came. Um, you know, the continuity, another very important uh, part of uh, of our life here is the, the quality of the faculty, and uh, that has remained strong, if not uh, been enhanced in the time that I've been here. Um, the breadth of what we cover probably has expanded uh, some. Um, in terms of other in religions? In terms of other religions. Where, uh, we are probably distinct... Um, uh, between uh, some of our peers in um, 
the business of theological education and being so f firmly and publicly committed to Christianity as the core of what we're up to. So uh, we are probably uh, more ecumenical and now a little more interfaith than we have been in the past. Um, but we're at not at, uh, at the point where uh, an institution like Harvard is with its um, uh, approach to comparative religion. So that has changed. Our horizons have uh, broadened some. Uh, we've, uh, I think, given more uh, attention to some of the practical theological disciplines um, and to things like Christian spirituality. Um, we made an appointment of someone in that uh, area for the first time, uh, what, uh, eight years ago? With Sister Janet Sister Ruffing. Janet Ruffing, yeah. So the, the curriculum has expanded. There's been a, a shift in the, um, the student body um, in the course of the time that I've been here. Uh, there were more students in the MDiv program, uh, a larger proportion of the student body in the MDiv program, uh, than is the case now. Right now, we're probably about 50% of the student body in the MDiv. It was probably more like 60, 65 when I um, uh, first came. Um, and so MDiv is obviously more slanted towards people who want to pursue ministry and right. the professional MAR. Right, professional service to the church as opposed mm -hmm. to some sort of academic or educational uh, project that you get. So the academic uh, interested students has kind of balanced it out? Has, has grown, mm -hmm. um, but uh, so too has the breadth of um, uh, academic disciplines that are represented. Um, uh, feminist studies, um, black studies, um, uh, environmental. environmental studies. There are a lot more things than one could pursue as an MAR student. Mm -hmm. And I heard a rumor <laughs> that you are retiring. The rumor is true. Oh, my gosh. What, I guess, will you miss the most? Will we be seeing you Around still, hopefully? Yes. Well, uh, this is my last semester of formal teaching, uh, but I'm still on the books for another three semesters after this, given the rules of the, um, the Yale uh, phased retirement program. Uh, so I formally retire in June of 2020. Um, and after that, we'll still be in New Haven and we'll still show up for the parties. You actually came to guest lecture one of my New Testament interpretation classes and Every class that I've ever heard, every lecture that I've ever heard of yours, it blows everyone away. <laughs> so <laughs> no, um, thank, thank you. you for that. I know that we're all going to miss you after mm -hmm. um, you leave. And thank you so much for joining us today. You're quite welcome.